Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about sky bridges or skyways. Uh, If you haven't heard part one yet, maybe you should go check that one out first. But as a brief refresher, uh, a sky bridge or a skyway is an architectural feature that you can think of as kind of a hallway in the sky or an enclosed bridge linking two buildings by the upper floors. In the last episode, we talked about some modern examples of sky bridges and some uh, interesting uh, ones from history, such as the uh, ooh, the Bridge of Sighs in Venice, Italy. Uh, it's an mm-hmm. uh, enclosed passageway that may look romantic from the outside, but has uh, mostly historical associations with uh, torture and prisons. Uh, but in the uh, let's see. Uh, but in today's episode, I think we're going to be talking more about what sky bridges mean, how they're interpreted, and how they might be used in the future. That's right. So first of all, I, I do want to refer back to some examples just briefly that we 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 discussed. The you know just the idea of say uh, the powerful Medici family uh, in Italy uh, using the, these uh, enclosed spaces and occasional things that we would definitely categorize as a sky bridge uh, to move from one place to the other without interacting with enemies or commoners, etc. Uh, yeah. We also looked at some examples of uh, of royalty in China uh, engaging in similar practices using these 
these as sort of privileged passageways uh, for uh, royal members of society. Oh, so you, what was the, uh, the Chinese ruler who, uh, went about in these halls so that devils would not see where he walked and, uh, he could only embrace, uh, good people, it said. Yes, yes, that would have been Emperor Chen Shi Wang. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, uh, he could, uh, uh, quote, act mysteriously to avoid devils and meanwhile embrace virtuous individuals. And one thing that we mentioned was that, yeah, okay, this is, this is one thing within a historical context, but generally speaking, I, I think a lot of us wouldn't want to overtly um, invoke that kind of idea. Uh, so in, in there we get to some of the sort of controversy and back and forth over just the nature of the sky bridge, like not, not only what it physically does, but also like what, is it, uh, what does it do um, in terms of, of society and uh, urban planning and, uh, and just the, like the, the, the larger nature of the city that goes beyond just mere structures and moving people around. And so I want to come back to the architect John Portman Jr. John Portman Jr. lived 1924 through 2017, um, American neo-futurist architect and real estate developer. Uh, we, allude, we mentioned some of the examples of his work here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he's known for popularizing the atrium, but also in using a lot of sky bridges. Now, as we mentioned, of course, there, there are a number of practical reasons to have sky bridges in a structure, moving people around so they don't have to uh, engage in, say, a hostile environment, uh, uh, you know, hot temperatures, freezing rain, that sort of thing. Also, you're going to have situations where you want to share resources within two different towers. So connect those towers at a higher floor. That way, people don't have to go all the way back down and then back up again, perhaps crossing a street or, uh, you know, checking in and out of security uh, along the way, that sort of thing. But in the case of Portman's Peachtree Center sky bridges, uh, there's apparently been controversy uh, over the years over the use of such walkways. So this area emerged during the 1970s. And while some of, of it is, is dated, some of it is still quite impressive. I have to say the, the MARTA train station at Peachtree Center is probably the coolest looking one in the system. It has these, these rock walls, uh, as well as this kind of still, I would say, futuristic looking uh, you know, like shiny metal surfaces. Uh, I don't know if he designed uh, the MARTA station in question, but there was right. one MARTA station, at least, that was used as a setting for a cut scene in John Carpenter's Escape from New York, I think, because it, you know, the sort of the blocky concrete mm -hmm. uh, fixtures in it just looked futuristic enough. Yeah, yeah, certainly at the time. That was, was that Five Point Station? I can't recall offhand, but but certainly you're right that on sounds, the thing. That sounds likely, yeah. Yeah, that, that also is a huge enclosed space uh, that uh, it, it is impressive in its own way to walk through. But uh, at any rate, yeah, this is all part of the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the varying stages of revitalization efforts in downtown Atlanta. And during this time, and especially the decades to follow, uh, Peachtree Center was, in the eyes of its critics, this thing that by its very structure sought to cut out street-level Atlanta in its entirety. Um, and, and not only people, but businesses. So rather than optimistically futuristic, uh, the critics would say, well, this is actually more Wellesian, a world of privilege uh, above cut off from the realities of the street below. Uh, for, there was a, one account that I was looking at, I was looking through various uh, old news stories, and I saw one about a, I believe it was a janitor strike that was taking place, and uh, this particular author had mentioned uh, people avoiding the protesters by making use of the sky bridges, uh -huh. uh, which seems like a stark example of the sort of... Um, 
uh, you know, the sort of privileged walkway that in, in ways I think can be compared to some of these older models that we were discussing. Now, the 1970s were, were, uh, were, were also not a period during which green downtowns were prioritized, certainly not in Atlanta. Uh, so, um, you know, one can, can factor that into the kind of weirdly spaceship-like architectural approach that one sees in some of these buildings we're discussing. So giant open atriums in buildings joined to each other by enclosed tunnels and bridges cut off from an outside where you have a languishing downtown and also just everything's just a sweltering gray heat island. Uh, this is actually one of the reasons that Trees Atlanta was founded in 1985 uh, to begin the, quote, greening of downtown. Oh, I didn't know that. So I don't know exactly how far this far back this reputation goes, but at least today Atlanta is known as a city that has an unusual amount of trees in its uh, in its urban center. Yeah, well, it, as far as downtown Atlanta goes, especially a lot of that is uh, we can thank uh, Trees Atlanta for. So that, all that's very, very local to us. But I think these are all great examples of some of the, you know, the s- discussions that take place over the use of the sky bridge. And next we're, direction we'd like to go in, though, is taking a step back and talking about, for the most part, taking a step back. But a lot of this is also still contemporary as well. But talking about futurism and the sky bridge, the ideas that end up being wrapped up in concepts that have sky bridges in them, you know, what we're what we're actually trying to achieve, what are some of the visions, sort of the loftier ideas that are caught up in all of this, and indeed, uh, what are some of the the really pivotal, uh, forward-facing ideas that we can point to uh, in the early 20th century? So when I was thinking about the social meaning of skybridges, especially in science fiction, it's interesting. I have a general sense that skybridges are often used in fictional architecture to emphasize exactly this kind of theme you were just talking about, of sort of uh, people living in elevated tubes of privilege that disconnect them from the realities below. And uh, one specific example is that I had a pretty distinct memory of the movie Metropolis, the 1927 mm-hmm. Fritz Long movie, uh, a, a sort of German expressionist science fiction masterpiece. Uh, and my idea, th- th- at least in my head, was that this movie was full of sky bridges. But when I did a Google search, I didn't find a lot of examples. The main thing I actually found in screenshots appeared to be uh, rail lines connecting the tops of buildings. And I found what looks like, I don't know, it looks like hand-drawn uh, illustrations based on the movie that do appear to have like connected uh, enclosed hallways. But I'm not sure how accurate my memory that the the city in Metropolis is full of sky bridges is. And nevertheless, for some reason, I had that impression. There certainly are these, these elevated rail lines going between uh, uh, skyscraper tops. And Metropolis is a is a great dystopian sci-fi film. Uh, one of the major themes of which is economic injustice. It it presents a sort of class bifurcated society where you have you know idle rich people sort of uh, frittering away their days up in the tops of great tall buildings, apparently rarely or never having to go down into the streets. And meanwhile, the the workers in the factories who make this techno utopia possible are confined to physically lower spaces. Even 
in subterranean tunnels and caverns, and eventually there there is a revolt in the in the film. But the theme is certainly there, but though maybe it doesn't have as many sky bridges as I actually remember. I, I don't know. Maybe they're just not coming through in the the screen you know grabs that people have put up uh, on the internet. Oh, I, I think there are definitely sky bridges in Metropolis. I know that uh, some of the sources I was looking at they they reference specifically early twentieth century science fiction cinematography, mm-hmm. and when you're talking about that. You're talking about Metropolis. I mean, Metropolis is the um, the, the example of, um, of futuristic cinema from uh, from, from especially the, the, the 20s, uh, par mm. excellence. You know, I mean, this is it. This is the big one. And uh, I, I did want to note that this vision of tall buildings occupied by the rich at the top while the workers live down on the ground, this interestingly it it squares with some realities such as the idea of like i don't know you know the the penthouse apartment but also the class associations are often inverted like i was reading some actual research papers about the psychological and social impact of living in tall buildings which i'll get into in a minute and these studies often cited the exact opposite that uh there there are widespread assumptions of uh high high rise living being associated with uh lack of economic means but as much as architecture is often a metaphor uh for for economic realities I think also lots of sci-fi has visions of future urban spaces where the tops of tall buildings are connected and doesn't necessarily have that meaning. It's not always a class critique. I think sometimes instead it's supposed to be taken as a sign of a complex or complicated society, that there are avenues connecting things back and forth like the like the arteries of a circulatory system, that it's a complex knot of associations resembling a kind of uh, like the vines in a jungle in physical form and and of course in in fact there there's sort of a literal analogy to the the biological architecture of a rainforest because on a rainforest in a rainforest you know you have sort of one level of life going on at the forest floor which of course is all connected by the continuous mm-hmm. surface but then you have the tree canopy level uh, where the the lateral connection of the ground level is replicated up above yeah yeah and so I think even in sci-fi movies without an economic critique there we see all these hallways going back and forth between the skyscrapers and it just makes us feel like, wow, it's so complex and there's so much going on. And it would be, you know, it would be hard for me to even understand how the, you know, the many layers of this society. Yeah. because It's interesting to, to sort of crack this nut because uh, one thing, and I'll come back to some sources that touch on this in a bit. If you think of like the upper penthouse of a, of a, of a very tall building, a skyscraper, what have you, the thing is like that is a dead end. Uh, that is the, the point at which you, you generally have no choice but to turn around and come back down. Um, and, uh, you know, you can say, oh, well, maybe there's a helicopter port up there. Okay, well, the, there's that. Um, and certainly you, you can extend this by pointing out that, well, some of the futuristic visions of, of cities uh, and where we're going with urban planning, they also often involve, say, a whole bunch of flying cars moving around or other flying, ve- flying vehicles, flying machines that are uh, serving as, as a way to connect these isolated islands in the sky. Uh, yeah. I mean, the classic examples of that would be like Blade Runner. 
Now, I think you could assume that maybe with Blade Runner, like you look at some uh, architectural features and say uh, there's implied critique here. There, there's some kind of implied critique about the society we're being shown. But there are other cases where I don't know if there is. It's just sort of like inherited science fiction texture, like in yeah. the Star Wars prequels. You, you see yeah, that yeah, exact thing, the traffic mm-hmm. going back and forth at many levels. There's like, you know, like the layers of a cake, uh, the different crisscrossing streams of flying cars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely an underworld to Coruscant as well. Uh, mm. But yeah, there are other films, uh, like, I don't know, The Fifth Element, for example, has a lot of yeah. cool flying cars. And that that feels maybe more like just sci-fi texture. But uh, to come back to this idea, like Coruscant with an underworld and, and all of this, I can't help but think, of course, of Dante's Inferno and all of this. And think again mm. of, the, of the skyscraper as mountain. Uh, in in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, we of course have the complexities of the of the underworld of Inferno. We have the Mount of Purgatory that extends mm-hmm. upward and reaches the point of Paradise, uh, mm-hmm. because because uh, then in the third book, of course, we have the Heavenly Realm. And the Heavenly right. Realm, I guess, we might we might well compare to uh, some of these visions of the uh, the the upper parts of skyscrapers being connected together we don't want isolation and loneliness in our heavens we want elaborate complexity Ah, this may be a more apt analogy even than you intended, because you remember like how often in the Paradiso, uh, Dante just talks about how like I couldn't describe what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just and and certainly when you look at illustrations, it's you know you you can have a, a pretty firm map of 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 uh, the Inferno, pretty firm map of the, the Mount of Purgatory, but yeah, para, Paradise is just this uh, like swirling circles and interconnected mm-hmm. wheels. Of course, any of these cinematic examples we're looking at, yeah, they, they, they harken back to Metropolis. Metropolis is the granddaddy of them all. And, and Metropolis is, is one of those movies that, that just stands the test of time. Certainly worth taking a look at again. Uh, and, but while it is one of the most popular, enduring, and certainly sci-fi influential visions of sky bridges and this interconnected skyscraper world, um, that film, too, was continuing trends of futurism, which apparently can be traced back to American folk artist Erastus Salisbury Field, who lived 1805 through 1900. So, uh, didn't even live to see Metropolis. Uh, but he did this, this wonderfully intriguing work titled Historical Monument of the American Republic, um, 1867 through 1888 uh, being the dates on this piece. And uh, definitely look this up. Uh, you can find images of this online. And Joe, I've included uh, an image of this for you here. Oh, okay. So I think this vision of the future is that everyone will get to live in their own Tower of Babel. Yeah, it is. It is very uh, yeah, uh, Bruegel-esque, uh, I, I would say. These don't yeah. instantly read as skyscrapers to the modern eye, but I mean, there are, there are certainly architectural features here that you will see on modern tall buildings. Uh, but yeah, this, <laughs> this, this, is, this looks like a, a fantastic realm. So whereas in a more mundane age, you you have the jealous competition with your neighbor for who can have the prettier lawn or the fancier, I don't know, satellite TV antenna. Uh, in this case, you're competing to see who can kill God first. <laughs> yeah, and if they're going to pull it off, they're going to do it from these what look to be like penthouse temples, kind of Gozerian in their uh, structure, that uh-huh. are all connected by bridges and have just oodles of statues at the top. I assume those are statues. Uh, and this is, and they literally appear to be clouds swirling around them. I mean, it's a cool drawing. Yeah, yeah. So this was created for the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition in 1876. 
and Wood and Safarik, the uh, the authors uh, that I um, I referenced in the first uh, episode, they say that this image influenced a number of other artists, including Charles R. Lamb and Vernon Ho Bailey, who created the 1908 Streets High in the Air illustrations. These are also worth checking out, and Joe, I have included uh, two examples of these for you. Now, these are not necessarily uh, skybridges or skyways in the more uh, narrow sense that we were talking about earlier of basically mm-hmm. an enclosed hallway that's got stuff all around. The, but these are still interesting because they are ideas of the bridge connecting skyscrapers. So right. buildings at height having a second level or maybe multiple levels of lateral connection. Uh, but here they're just open streets. Uh, I mean, that's interesting, too. Yeah, and you see a train moving through one of them, like mm-hmm. a great worm burrowing through this uh, behemoth. Um, yeah, these are, these are impressive images that also have, uh, you know, maybe it's the coloration, or at least the versions I have here. Like one is definitely like a charcoal looking black and white, and the other has this kind of washed out um, like orange and brown tint to it. It makes it feel kind of apocalyptic in some ways. Mm-hmm. But still, this, yeah, this was roughly 20 years before we'd see such images in cinema. Uh, another key 20th century figure in all of this was editor and publisher Moses King, who commissioned uh, many such images for King's Views of New York. Uh, this was a book that came out, and I've included a cover fr- uh, from this publication for you, Joe. And as you can see, this one's just crazy with it. They're just bridges connecting all of these skyscrapers, skyscrapers that, that look more... Um, contemporary for this time period, but then also flying machines galore. Mm-hmm. Oh, your city's full of biplanes? Well, mine's full of triplanes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I see some airships. Uh, pretty fantastic looking. So uh, this is what Wood and Safarik uh, have to say uh, in their paper. And uh, that paper, again, if anyone wants to check that out, it is Sky Bridges, A History and a View to the Near Future. They write, quote, The early Skybridge Sky City portrayals came about as a direct response to very real urban issues, which were pressing at the time. Primary of these urban issues was the impact that both tall buildings and increased vehicular traffic were having on the ground floor urban condition. Tall buildings were increasingly growing in height and overcrowding the street, and the conflict between pedestrian and vehicular traffic was increasing. The recurring themes in all the early futuristic visions evolved as a response to these problems, both the stepped-back tiered skyscraper and the multi-level circulation system. The stepped-back skyscraper was seen as a way to preserve light and air on congested, overdeveloped New York streets, and the multi-level circulation system a practical organizational tool to handle the vast number of new vehicles and people flooding into the city. Ah, so to comment on, Rob, I don't think you explained this one yet, but the the idea of the stepped back tiered skyscraper is also Mm -hmm. also interesting. So you're imagining something, well, actually, this might explain the idea of the, uh, why the towers in that drawing look like the Tower of Babel from from Bruegel, Uh, you know, that like, it's uh, terraced, uh, I don't know what you call it, stadium seating levels, you know, they they go back each level. uh, And this, I guess, would let more light into the city. Right. I mean, this this also factored into a, a few other design issues that and engineering issues that were were definitely present in buildings of that time period. And uh, and sometimes it was like the code of the city that if you built it, you had to have upper level step back uh, from mm-hmm. the street a certain amount. Interesting. Now another another name to mention here: American architect, illustrator, and poet Hugh Ferris. 
No connection to Gail Ferris Jr. of Ferris Wheel fame. Uh, their last names are spelled differently. Uh, but uh, Hugh Ferris, another big name who created uh, some images for 1929's The Metropolis of Tomorrow. And Joe, if you look at these just beautiful uh, art deco black and white illustrations, uh, yeah, th- th- these are pretty f- fabulous. Like this is Gotham City. They make me think of the Oscar statue for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't say why, but they are very pretty. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, so I guess I just want to drive home that you have this, this craving for sky bridges and interconnected skyscrapers like this. It's, it's kind of this mix of this attempt to solve practical problems while also clearly to, you know, to create beautiful uh, architecture, to bring dreams into physical reality. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I imagine there's a bit of, 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 of push and pull between those, uh, those aspirations. Well, yeah, and I think you, you know, uh, we've talked about some of the dystopian associations of, of sky bridges in science fiction, but they certainly don't have to have those. And in some ways, you could look at interconnecting higher levels of buildings as a, a very positive social outcome, mm-hmm. uh, especially given that it, it just looks like the reality is urban population density is probably going to continue to increase. Um, you know, there are strong urbanization trends worldwide. People are more often just moving further into city centers. In in 2015, uh, 54% of the world's population lived in cities. Uh, the, the World Health Organization estimates that by 2050, that number will probably climb to about 66%. It's hard to know for sure, but if, you know, trends continue. So people are continually crowding more and more into cities. Population density is increasing. And where are we going to fit all those people? There is no way to generate additional surface area. So the main direction you have to go would be up or down um so i guess you could dig into tunnels but you know natural light is nice so you want to go up yeah yeah and and to your point like access is is also a big point that's not necessarily going to be as baked into the architectural design um you know for just to, to take it in a different direction it's like the difference between a fully public park and a and a membership uh uh based golf course in a city yes like one of the they're both big green spaces but they're totally different in how they connect with the city and the people of the city exactly so you can imagine a uh, a, a city full of tall buildings that are connected at upper levels just providing new kind of uh public spaces in the in the the better version of this future where you know it's like the streets below there's new things to see and do up there new places to live and and uh, uh sites to visit and so when you look at these sci-fi visions of a future where tall buildings are often connected by sky bridges and other lateral thoroughfares, again, creating a kind of like like the canopy level of the trees in a rainforest, mm-hmm. it, it implies a society where one can travel from building to building at the top level without ever having to go down to the bottom, exit the building, and use the surface level streets. And I guess what that means about if you're trying to imagine the life people would live in that environment – 
it's just a life where there are fewer reasons to exit the high-rise environment. So today, if you live in a tall building, you probably need to exit that building to do most things, to see family and friends, to go to work, to go shopping, and so forth. But what if all of those things were also in the tops of nearby buildings and you could travel across sky bridges from one to the other? That That's clearly a, a future that some people have in mind, and it's not impossible to imagine something like this. But if you are imagining that as the future, it's worth asking, how would this situation affect our minds and our mm-hmm. culture? Uh, you know, you can such a radical restructuring of the, you know, the location and architecture of our lives it, that that's probably not totally neutral. So ha- has anybody looked into the question of what being in a high rise all the time does to people? Are there psychological effects of spending more of your time in the upper floors? And it turns out, yes, there actually is a good bit of research on this subject. Uh, so I came across a review of the existing body of literature on this from 2021 by a couple of scholars affiliated with Cornell University. So this paper is by uh, Sala Kalantari and Mardell Shepley. It was published in the journal Housing Studies, again, 2021. And it's called Psychological and Social Impacts of High-Rise Buildings, a Review of the Post-Occupancy Evaluation Literature. So this paper looks uh, specifically at what are called post-occupancy evaluation studies, which are the, quote, evaluation of buildings in a systemic and rigorous manner after they have been built and occupied. This systemic evaluation measures and monitors the performance of a built environment using data gathered from behavioral, technical, and functional observation. So this is what, what's happening in buildings after people have moved in and lived there. Now, unfortunately, this is another one of those social science areas where there are lots of different studies, but they aren't always perfectly easy to compare to each other because they're not always measuring exactly the same thing or maybe limited in scope or have results that conflict with one another. But a few trends do seem to emerge from this literature. The top line, I would say, is that spending your life up in a tall building is associated with some fairly consistent negative consequences for life and health, especially for lower-income occupants, but that these negative effects can probably be mitigated or even erased by better design of high-rise living spaces. So what are some of the negative effects that have been repeatedly found uh, to be associated with high-rise living? Uh, I want to mention a couple of these in more detail and then give some summary comments. Uh, in terms of the the ones I'm going to mention in more detail, one of them appears to be loneliness and social isolation. Hmm. So since the 1970s, uh, researchers have found that people living in high-rises are likely to experience more feelings of loneliness and less social and community engagement. Why would this be? Well, uh, the authors of this review write, quote, Ronald 2007 indicated a relative deficiency in social engagement in a broad comparative study of European high-rise housing and attributed this isolation to designs that, quote, support individualization and anonymity. A study conducted in Singapore reported minimal neighborly relations and concluded that high-rise living, quote, does not readily build community. Uh, So at least what some of these studies seem to conclude is that there's something about the way we are building high-rise buildings, high-rise residential buildings, that sort of discourages people from forming community relationships with their neighbors and encourages a kind of uh, isolated uh, way of living that sort of makes you feel like you need to retreat into an anonymous space. Oh, once again, I'm reminded of the lyrics of Warren Zevon, uh, 
from Splendid Isolation. I want to live yeah. on the Upper East Side and never go down in the streets. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that, but yeah. And so uh, the authors of this review, they look at a number of studies from different places all around the world, Scotland, Hong Kong, India, which all found that high-rise living was more associated with things like loneliness, antisocial behavior, decreased trust in neighbors, and stuff like that. However, uh, and this seems to be important, I think the researchers note that it may not actually be the fact that you were high up off the ground that causes this. Like, it might not actually be the elevation it may be more the kind of uh, more kind of side effect resulting from trends in the design of high rise buildings. In other words, mm-hmm. it may just happen to be that high rise buildings are designed in ways that discourage social interaction and community and that breed loneliness and isolation. But that would be the case no matter what floor you lived on. So it's not a not a case of well, if, if God wanted us to live in the skies, He would have given us wings. It's more of a situation where well. We uh, human beings are not wired to live in this kind of isolation, uh, generally speaking, like we are uh, social creatures who need to have some level of community around us. Yes, and also that there's some indication that maybe the designs of high-rise residential buildings, when they do force interaction between uh, residents, it tends to be negative interactions. Like the Mm -hmm. authors cite a study of of high-rise residential buildings in Paris, which found that people attributed uh, their poor relationships to, quote, overcrowded conditions in their high-rises, which they viewed as prompting irritability and conflict. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that differently designed spaces for high-rise life would not produce these negative effects at all. And then I I thought this was really interesting to further complicate things. There are some studies that don't find this association or even find the exact opposite with people living in high rises, having fairly strong community bonds, especially when building designs include things like central courtyard areas, like common Mm -hmm. spaces where people can gather or when residents had pre-existing external social connections, meaning that like they know each other in some capacity other than just being neighbors in the building. Maybe they work together or they, they are, you know, knew each other before they moved in. Uh, to read from the, uh, the authors here, quote, In many of these latter studies, various sociological factors in the overall environmental design, rather than high-rise buildings per se, appear to be more relevant to the health of social interactions. It's also notable that all of the included studies that found positive community relationships in high-rise contexts were conducted in East or Southeast Asia, such as Singapore, Taiwan, or Hong Kong, while the majority of studies that found negative community impacts were carried out in the U.S. and Europe. And so I don't know what would be the cause of these cultural differences in the impact of high-rise uh, buildings. I don't know if there, it's a result of uh, different trends in architecture in these places or, or cultural differences, but I, th- those divergent outcomes are interesting. This is uh, fascinating. Yeah, uh, it reminds me, I've been, I've been watching this show on Apple TV titled Home, which is about mm-hmm. different it's specifically about different home designs that have been constructed that you know that explore new ideas or explore old ideas and uh, in this show they do get into some of some of the the cultural aspects it makes me wonder like if if multi-generational households are a part of this equation hmm. uh, uh, because you, you definitely see, I mean, in, in general, I think you see this uh, this trend away from that with uh, with modern city based living, but perhaps less so in uh, in uh, like East Asian models versus European and and uh, U.S. models. But but I'm not sure. 
Well, so that's the idea of uh, loneliness and isolation uh, and, and promoting antisocial living. But uh, another thing is that many studies have found a fairly consistent link between high-rise living and uh, several negative mental health outcomes. Uh, mm-hmm. Though in this case, again, it's difficult to isolate the high-rise itself as the causative factor rather than attendant social and cultural issues that, uh, that often go along with high- high-rise living in places where this has been studied. So if it is actually living in the high-rise building that causes negative mental health outcomes, how would that work? Well, one explanation would be that this is caused by reducing exposure to nature, uh, reducing exposure to vegetation and green space. If you are hmm. up in the high-rise and there's not much greenery around you in the you know rooms and the hallways that you that you occupy, and being up there, you're, you're just less likely to get out into nature at the ground level that probably will have some negative consequences for mental health. And this seems to be backed up by at least a couple of studies showing that adding more natural elements to high rises. So maybe if you include access, like you ease access to green space from the upper floors of the high rise, or you include green space within those places that that reduces some of these problems. And finally, the author cites some uh, probably important findings about the potential effect of high-rise living specifically on childhood growth and development. Uh, so they write, quote, a number of studies conducted during the 1970s found increased behavioral problems, physical health issues, and uh, decreased motor and academic skills among children living in high-rise buildings. They say that these findings have been confirmed in, in later studies several times. And then they write, quote, as is the case with other demographic populations, however, the current research has demonstrated that these outcomes are strongly mediated by income level and other socioeconomic variables. Children from wealthier families who live in high-rises are much more likely to have access to vibrant play spaces and to experience a greater sense of safety and involvement in the surrounding neighborhood, which makes it unsurprising that they exhibit few of the developmental issues that are widely reported for their less privileged peers. And that last point about a sort of economic determinism in the outcomes of uh, for child development can actually be extracted to the findings of this research more broadly. So the authors write in their discussion section that you know one of the most significant trends observed here is that quote the high rise environment appears to intensify existing socioeconomic divisions. So there there seems to be a kind of Matthew principle at work, right? Like the rich get richer and the poor mm. get poorer. So when you when you study wealthy people it seems that the ones living in high-rise environments tend to report outcomes that are just as good or even better than equivalent, uh, equivalently wealthy people in other built environments. Whereas for lower-income people, living in a high-rise is correlated with a lot of negative outcomes when compared to other types of buildings. And this seemingly paradoxical result could have it could have a number of causes, so it's hard to pin it down to one thing. But to the extent that the built environments themselves are at least one of those causes, a lot of these unequal outcomes could probably be alleviated by better, more humane building design in affordable residential high-rises. And so uh, some of the better designs would probably, you know, couldn't be limited to this, but would probably include things like the incorporation of these vibrant shared spaces, right? Essentially, courtyards, lobbies, gathering places which have safe open spaces for children to play and explore and for people to gather. Uh, Also, on top of that, lots of natural light and greenery. These factors seem really important for people's psychological well-being. You need to be Mm -hmm. able to see the sun. There need to be plants around. 
and then they also call out things like better wayfinding and layout design. Though I think they mention this more in the context of like uh, commercial buildings, though that matters too. You know, they say the floors of tall buildings can sometimes be hard to navigate in ways that uh, cause a kind of stress and confusion that uh, that really builds up on t- uh, on you over time. Yeah, like that feeling of of exiting the elevator and not really knowing like which way you're supposed to go in. Yeah. And uh, sort of getting lost in the, the hallways, yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, to, to bring all this back to the idea of building this sci-fi fantasy city, sort of the concrete canopy, if we were to try to build cities that had um, that had life that existed in a more consistent way in the upper levels of buildings, I, I do think that's doable, but I, it sounds like you'd need to be very careful how you design that city. Uh, you'd want to design it in a way that doesn't make people miserable and cause these negative downstream outcomes for their for their well-being and mental health. Again, this is not exhaustive of the things you need to do, but it seems clear that like a very important thing would be putting plenty of things like parks up there. Um, and I think this is partially the uh, the spirit of an architectural movement I've read about called Streets in the Sky, where mm. I think the idea is sort of to create high-rises in which there are lots of public areas that are more like the streets on the ground, not like private hallways, but open spaces connecting desirable destinations that cause that, that have plenty of foot traffic. And of course, foot traffic is associated with all kinds of positive outcomes in residential areas, you know, re resultant improvements in public safety and just a positive vibe that comes along with people, you know, wanting to hang out and go from place to place. I think attempts to design buildings like this may may have had some limited success so far, but you could imagine it working better if it was more widely adopted. If you had more contiguous buildings connected, uh, each with destinations for shopping and public spaces, especially lots of greenery and natural light, places that people would want to go and be walking around in all the time. Yeah, and I guess one of the big challenges here, obviously, is that one sky bridge is not going to fix it. Like we're not talking right. about uh, well, throw up a sky bridge. Throw up, I'll tell you what, throw up two sky bridges, and we'll fix things. No, you 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 really are talking about a, a whole different approach to treating these uh, these towers, these skyscrapers, and their uh, not only you know what's available at the, on the at the upper levels, but also the street level as well. Uh, you know, I mean, there there are plenty of existing. Uh, apartment towers in cities like Chicago that that were designed with the idea of yeah you don't have to leave this tower uh, like here are your shops here's your here's where you park your car and it's all in the various layers of the design and so uh, you know it's it's almost like a, a teardown approach um, mm -hmm. you, you would need a, a new type of building a new type of architecture to create the city and and so there have been some really interesting designs that have emerged over the years. Um, one of which that I've been fascinated by in the past is uh, a Russian concept uh, that emerged called the uh, the, the Vulcan bugle. Okay, this is um, 
this is, can be translated as cloud hangers, sky hangers, or sky hooks. And these were the brainchild of uh, a Russian architect by the name of L. Uh, Lisitsky, who lived 1890 through 1941. Um, I encourage everyone out there to look up some images of these. These are what are sometimes described as horizontal skyscrapers. Uh, they, they were never built, but the basic concept here, the, the, the idea was that there would be eight um, basically three-story L-shaped buildings in Moscow positioned 50 meters above the street on three pylons. So, yeah, imagine uh, one of those, um, imagine a Tetris block that is, uh, what, uh, two, what, two or three up, and then it has a little L part. Now imagine turning that horizontally, turning it on its side, and then sticking that up in the air on a massive pylon. I think I think it's a very cool design, though you can imagine being nervous walking under one of these. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, but I, I guess you'd get used to it. You know, the same way we get yeah. used to the, the concept of skyscrapers in the in the air above us. But right, um, yeah, it's it's basically the idea here. It's a wide uh, horizontal living space elevated with a very narrow footprint on the street. So again, go back to what we were talking about earlier, like some of the, the, the reasons that people were looking at sky bridges. Part of it was congestion, vehicular and pedestrian congestion below. They're like, well, we got to, if you can reduce the footprint, uh, then, then that's great. And then if you can connect things above even better, uh, so one of the central ideas, though, on top of this, was that Lisitsky didn't think that vertical living was natural for human beings. He argued that we needed horizontal spaces. And this sort of, of design, while certainly still requiring vertical movement, you'd still have to take stairs or elevators up, it would maximize the horizontal environmental experience. I mean, none of the empirical researchers I was reading put it in exactly those terms, but in a vague way, that seems to square pretty strongly with with the research I was just looking at. That you know, like that these what do they call these vibrant shared spaces? Like having these big open horizontal spaces seems to be very helpful in creating a more humane living environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, On top of this, there was the idea that these pylons would extend into the ground, connecting to a subway system. And then he also even factored in the idea, okay, if you have multiple uh, of these, um, these, these sky hangers, uh, cloud hangers uh, in a given part of the city, it might be confusing. They all look the same. Uh, no, he's saying we'll color code them. That way you have a, you're able to instantly tell where you are in reference to another. So it's not just a bunch of uh, sort of uh, alien gray buildings all emerging from the same area. No, one is, say, orange, one is red, one is green, et cetera. Hmm. Also, these would be positioned at intersections where traffic and congestion was at its worst, freeing up room. Uh, yeah, so these are, these are fascinating to look at some of the, uh, uh, the, the images of what could have been here. And while there are modern buildings with fantastic cantilever designs that, that bring these images to mind, no uh, Volkenbugels were ever actually built, certainly not in Russia. And uh, largely, it seems to be just too ahead of its time, uh, mm-hmm. partially as a concept, perhaps, but also just, I think, uh, engineering-wise, uh, Lisitsky uh, seemed to, to think, well, it's just we weren't ready to build these yet. You know, as I'm looking at these pictures, though, <laughs> a, a, a consequence was emerging in my mind. We, we've been talking about more more positive, uh, more equitable, more humane ways to design cities that are connected at the upper levels. 
but I was just thinking about how, to some degree, some of the benefits uh, of uh, of horizontal space are kind of zero sum, right? Because if you were to end up creating a city that's totally covered in these horizontal spaces at higher levels, you'd essentially be cutting off the ground level from right. sunlight. You know, yeah, uh, like you get some diagonal sunlight, but you, you, there are some limits on what you could put up above without negatively impacting the quality of life below. And then you get back into that, that possible vision of, uh, of, uh, of bifurcation with, with negative consequences at the ground. Yeah. Like, oops, I accidentally created a shell and created yeah. a new underworld. Yeah. I thought of that because this goes beyond just sort of like, like hallways connecting tall buildings that might have, uh, you know, uh, uh, horizontal spaces that are vertically aligned with their footprint on the ground, but this is like reaching out over empty space. So if you imagine lots of buildings like that, they just start to kind of become a, like a roof for the city. Yeah. And certainly when you look at, look at these con these concepts, they don't, or certainly the original concepts, they don't really create this sense that the like a vibrant street level uh, community was very much uh, part of the the, the, the aim here. Mm-hmm. Now, looking into the future, Wood and Safarak point out that one of the lingering failures of tall buildings is just that lack of integration into the urban fabric. So mm-hmm. obviously, there are a lot of cool sky bridges, but most buildings are not connected in this way. They're connected at, to the city at ground level. And there's a broad spectrum of what it might be like at ground level, uh, from having like a vibrant community and shops to it just being, uh, you know, desolation in some cases. Um, mm. And so the goal of, of many tall buildings, it, it seems, has, has, has very much been not to fit in with the world beneath, but to stand out from it. And uh, so they present an idea that may feel equal parts fantastic and reasonable uh, and, and perhaps today as it has been for, for decades. Quote, if cities concentrate perhaps 10 or 100 times more people at a given location through building tall, there is also a need to replicate the facilities that exist at the ground plane up in the sky, including the parks and the sidewalks, the schools and the hospitals, and other public civic functions. The ground plane should be considered as a duplicable layer of the city, which needs to be replicated, at least in part, at strategic horizons within and between buildings in the sky, not as a replacement of the ground plane, but as an addition to it. Every tall building would then need to be considered as a vital element in an overall three-dimensional urban framework rather than a standalone icon superimposed on a two-dimensional urban plan. I think that's very well put. Yeah, yeah, this idea that, again, you're not replacing the street, but you were augmenting it, you were replicating it. So yeah. you would have, still have a vibrant street-level uh, community, but the, you would have this, this sky-level community as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, uh, there's some fascinating, fascinating ideas here. Um, I, I would obviously love to hear from tower dwellers out there, uh, and, and former to- tower dwellers, and perhaps future tower dwellers uh, who are listening to this show. Uh, because I, I, for one, I've I've never lived in a, a tall building. I've I don't think I've really worked in a tall building. I mean, our, our most recent well, I mean, our most recent studios, uh, our most recent office building was what what fourth floor of a building. Well, the most recent the one before, we used to record in a tall building. I mean, but that was what what floor were we on? Uh, Eight, like fourteen, 10, fifteen, something 14, like that. Fourteen, fifteen, really? I think huh. so. Yeah, well, it had a nice balcony. I remember that. 
That one, that one, but I guess one of the things about that building is that we had, for most of the run there, we had the entire floor and a balcony. So we did have a lot of horizontal space. So maybe that was part of it. We didn't feel as locked in. Also, though, that original office had some cubicles. Wasn't, wasn't full open office <laughs> yet. Oh, yeah. I did love those cubicles. They were stylish cubicles, too. They weren't your... Uh, they weren't like what you would see on The Office or something. They were more like what you would see on um, Severance. You know, they're, they're fun <laughs> cubicles. Yeah. But anyway, like I say, we'd love to hear from everyone out there in, in different parts of the world. What is it, what is it like uh, living in the tall building? Uh, does any of this match up with what we've been discussing in these episodes? Or, oh, again, your favorite skywalks. Tell me about your skywalks. Um, uh, what are your favorite? Uh, what is it? What What has it been like to uh, traverse some of the uh, the notable skywalks out there in our world? In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Get that wherever you get your podcast. You'll find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You'll find short form artifacts or monster facts on Wednesdays, listener mail on Mondays, and on Fridays we do Weird Al Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Uh, I'll also add this if you want to be a part of the Discord channel or group Discord whatever discord world for this show uh email us and we'll send you a link to join that i wanted to share that some of the users there are doing a book club it looks like they are planning to read umberto echoes the name of the rose so if you want to get in on that again email the show joe will give you the email address in a second and i'll make sure that we get the invite to the discord to you Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.